Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Nick Bostrom. Nick is professor in the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, as well as being director of the Future of Humanity Institute and director of the Governance of Artificial Intelligence Program. Nick, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, So Nick, from what I read, you had four undergraduate majors, eventually settling on physics and neuroscience for your graduate work, and now you're a philosopher. Can you uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about your journey uh, and your background and what you're focused on nowadays? Well, I, I studied a bunch of different things as an undergraduate that seemed to me to possibly be useful uh, for eventually trying to understand big important things. I didn't know exactly which things were important to understand, but philosophy seemed to be one area, physics another, neuroscience and AI also useful to have. So I kind of just started around a lot of different things. To make a uh, long story short, the uh, thing that I'm now running, the Future of Humanity Institute, is a multidisciplinary research center at Oxford University. We have people from a number of different disciplines, mainly mathematics and computer science, but also some philosophers, political scientists, um, trying to think hard about big picture questions uh, for human civilization, things that could affect the trajectory of Earth-originating intelligent life. And AI has been a big focus, I'd almost say obsession of ours uh, for a number of years now. So we have both one group that is doing technical work on uh, AI safety, AI alignment, and another group that is uh, looking at AI governance issues. And did you study AI as part of your graduate work? I I did a little bit. Yeah, this was uh, back uh, in... In the 90s, uh, I, I took some AI courses back then. I then wrote a master's uh, thesis in computational neuroscience. Uh, and, and then I kind of drifted away from the field a little bit, uh, but came back to it as a focus area when I began working on my book, the book Superintelligence. So this would have been maybe 10 years ago. Uh, for those not familiar with the book, um, you know, what were the major themes in superintelligence? Well, the book tries to think through what happens if AI succeeds one day at its original goal, which has all along been to produce general intelligence in machine substrate, not just to substitute for human cognition in, in specific tasks, but to figure out ways, I think, of achieving the same powerful general learning ability, planning ability, reasoning ability that make us humans unique. Um, So at least when I was uh, beginning working on that book, there had been a surprisingly small amount of attention paid to to what would happen if if the ultimate goal were achieved. There's a lot of work trying to make AI slightly more capable, but little thought to what would happen if we achieved human-level general artificial intelligence one day. Uh, I argue in the book that that probably would be followed within relatively short order uh, by superhuman levels of machine intelligence. And and I then the bulk of the book then then explores different scenarios and tries to introduce different concepts and analytic tools that one can use to try to begin to think more systematically about the issues that will arise in that kind of radically transformative context. 
Yeah, I'm wondering, do you consider yourself or do you think of yourself as, you know, either, you know, pessimistic or optimistic about this, you know, the direction that AI is taking? I'm, I'm full of both hopes and fears. I think sometimes my public persona is often believed to be more on the negative side than I actually am. That is, I'm actually very excited about the myriad beneficial applications, both in the near term and and also over a longer period of time that one could hope to get from AI. But but I think because the book had a significant focus on what could go wrong if if we if we fail to get this transition to machine superintelligence right, uh, because the book spent quite a number of pages trying to get a more granular understanding of exactly where the pitfalls are there how, uh, so that we could avoid them. I, I think then, say, journalists often come to me to get the negative scoop. Uh, and, 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 and once you're sort of in that pigeonhole, the, the, the journalist might ask you a bunch of questions. You say various things, some positive, some negative. They cut out all the positive things you say. Uh, and then you appear as saying this negative soundbite, and then other journalists hear that, and it kind of gets a self-reinforcing loop. Um, but to answer your question, you know, I wouldn't consider myself as either a, an optimist or a pessimist, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just better understand what, what the spectrum of possibilities are, and, and most importantly, how actions people take or can take here and now w- will affect likely long-term outcomes for humanity. When you think about the kind of spectrum of outcomes and the things that could go wrong, you know, how do you categorize them? Is there, is there kind of a high-level categorization that you've developed of the, you know, the different ways that you think about the safety issues that we're, the, the issues that we're trying to safeguard? Well, you could carve it up in different ways. I mean, if, if you want a very high-level uh, division, you could distinguish risks that come from the AI itself, that is, ways that AIs could harm humans. So there we have, in the context of machine superintelligence, the possibility of a failure to solve the uh, alignment problem, failure to get this hypothetical future superintelligence system to do what we want it to do. Uh, we, we can go into that in more detail later if you want, but that's kind of one category of risk. Then another would be the risk that not, not that the AI would do something bad to humans, but that humans would use the AI to do bad things to other humans. So use it unwisely, recklessly, or maliciously. The, the way we've used a lot of other technologies throughout human history, uh, not just for beneficial purposes, but to wage war or to oppress one another. Um, and then, then I actually think there is a third category of concern, uh, which has um, received a lot less attention. But this would be risks of us humans doing bad things to the AI. Um, I think at some point, these digital minds that we're building might uh, come to possess various degrees of moral status, just like, say, uh, many non-human animals have degrees of moral status. And there is then a risk that we will maltreat, say, uh, an, an AI system that, that is capable of some form of sentience, uh, morally relevant interests, capable of suffering. Um, at least if we draw a logical scheme, that, that should be in there as one category of, of potential uh, harm that could occur. It it strikes me that in order to fully kind of wrap our heads around around this issue, you know, it's fundamentally a a, a long term, broad time horizon issue, right? It's there, you know, there's 
lot, a lot of the response that you see to these issues being raised is that, you know, we're nowhere near AGI. We have no idea how we're going to get there. And when you think about the the time frame or time horizon of your research is there, you know, do you put a number on that? Or do you have a, uh, a sense as to when, what's the time frame that we need to be worried about this kind of thing? Uh, there is uh, a lot of uncertainty about the timeline. So in organizing one's thinking, it's sometimes better not to do it with reference to say calendar years, but rather relative to some set of capabilities. Like if and when we reach this level of technical capability, then these social issues will arise. Um, I think a lot of the confusion and, and some of the controversy surrounding these questions comes from conflating two different contexts, the context of long-term radically transformative machine superintelligence or human-level intelligence on the one hand, and on the other hand, the near-term context of what we can do now or will be able to do over the next few years that will impact, say, national security or impact the economy. And I think both of these contexts um, are important, uh, are legitimate things to have conversations about, but but they are very different and one needs to keep them apart. Otherwise, I think one simultaneously tends to overhype the present and underhype the uh, longer term future. Uh, and so is your research particularly focused on the the longer term? Yeah, that's what I'm most interested in, because I think ultimately that will matter more and make a bigger difference in the world. Do you work on both these nearer term issues as well as the longer term issues? Well, a little bit on the near term, but really our heart is in the longer term, trying to figure out whether there are things at some point that might affect the trajectory of human civilization, uh, as, as opposed to just be bumps in the road. I think it's also more neglected. There are more groups interested in near-term issues. So our relative ability to add value there is smaller than I think on the more neglected longer-term issues. I'm curious what your experience is talking to folks about these longer-term issues. You know, Given the challenges that we have with things like global warming and humans' impact on the habitability of the, the Earth, which seems to be, I guess it seems to be more present than uh, AGI. How do you get people to care, I guess, is the, is the question. There's been a huge amount of interest, actually, in our work uh, in general, but on AI in particular. So it, maybe it's surprising, but yeah, no, that hasn't, hasn't been a problem. I think the, the key challenge now uh, is not so much to create a greater level of interest on AI and long-term AI, but rather to try to channel the existing level of interest and concern in constructive directions. So a lot of people have this general sense, well, you know, AI, maybe it could be really big, you know, it could be good or bad or scary, we don't really know how to think about it. So how, how do you take that and then use that amount of activation energy to, to produce like actually constructive work in the world, like say research that will give us better tools for scalable control um, or our advances in our ability to uh, politically organize or to think of governance arrangements that, that could result in a better outcome down the road. I want to take a step back. Uh, you mentioned that along this thinking about the timeline, uh, that it's often better to think about it in terms of capability. What are, are there specific uh, pivot points or inflection points uh, in the capability timeline that 
uh, are notable. Uh, you know, achieving AGI, uh, I imagine is one and, and achieving super intelligence is another. Are there, are there inflection points between where we are today and AGI that you think are interesting milestones? No, it's, it's actually quite hard to think of what would be a reliable indicator that AGI is going to happen, say, five years down the line. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite possible that uh, instead what will happen is it will look like we are lost in a thick forest um, for some unknown period of time. And then maybe we stumble on a clearing and the finish line is just a few yards ahead of us. That is, we, we, we shouldn't have a great deal of confidence in our ability to be able to see a long time in advance that AGI will occur. You know, there are some milestones that maybe if you had asked people 20 years ago, uh, they would have thought would be pretty impressive. Um, say, the successes with AlphaGo. Um, now, now that we passed them, I mean, uh, th- there is a risk, I guess, of just kind of gradually taking for granted things that really ex ante were hugely impressive and, and our expectation level just adjusts so that there will be no point maybe at which we will be more shocked and awed than uh, we were with AlphaGo un- until we're almost all the way there and you already have weak forms of AGI running around and doing. And, and, and at that point, it's kind of a little bit late in the day to start thinking about the safety issues. I, I think we want to use the time we have available uh, now uh, to, to put ourselves in the best possible position uh, for the coming transition to the era of machine superintelligence. And so you mentioned a big part of your work is trying to come up with these concrete uh, strategies or uh, agendas that folks should be taking up. You know, what are some of those things that we should be doing to uh, prepare? Well, one is this uh, research field of AI safety, which uh, when the book was being written, uh, hardly existed. There might have been 10 people in the world who were you know, doing that, and it was very, very far from mainstream. So now now there is a research community working on this with groups in a number of different places. There's a, a group at Berkeley, um, some work in Montreal. We, we are doing uh, joint technical research seminars with DeepMind, who also has an AI safety group, uh, OpenAI. So it, it's kind of become a small little research field in its own right. And that, that seems constructive. And probably there should be more of that kind of work. Um, then I think we're still at an earlier stage with respect to the governance challenges. Maybe we are with respect to the governance challenges where we were with respect to AI safety work five years ago. Like there's some sense that it's important that somebody should work on it, but not yet a very clear conception about just what kind of work would be helpful. So um, maybe a few years down the road, we will have a clearer sense of what kind of uh, work on governance would be productive. Although the issue there is slightly different. So AI safety is it's a technical challenge. Ultimately, the more people hammering away at it, the better. At, at worst, they produce nothing. Uh, and, and at best, they produce some insight that could actually be useful. When, when it comes to political problems, it's not always obvious that having more people work on it will produce a better outcome or producing more insight or knowledge or shared understanding will always produce a better outcome. Uh, you also have to worry there about things like arms race dynamics and so forth. Uh, so it gets more strategically complicated to figure out what would actually be a helpful intervention when we are talking about things that are more in the political domain. 
Uh, maybe as an example of that, you wrote a paper, I guess it was last year sometime, on the implications of openness in AI development. With a kind of cursory view of the paper, it was that your results were a little bit counterintuitive. Can you talk a little bit about that paper yeah, and kind of what led to it? There, There is this widespread view that openness in AI development is a good thing. O- openness is almost one of these words that like freedom or democracy or fairness, that is kind of almost like just an applause light, right? It sounds sounds good. We should have more of it. Um, but I think it's actually not at all obvious that ultimately that is what we want to have more of with AI. I think the short-term impact of more openness are positive. That is more people more quickly get access to state-of-the-art techniques and can use them more widely. And I think on balance, that is positive. But if we're thinking about this hypothetical future strategic context where we are getting close to developing machine superintelligence and and you think maybe there will be several groups or countries or firms competing to try to get there first in that context openness could be extremely dangerous you would want it seems to me whoever develops superintelligence first to have the ability at the end of that development process to pass for six months let us say um, or a year to test their system very carefully, double check all their safety mechanisms, maybe to slowly boost its intelligence through the human range and into the super intelligent range. But if you have, say, 20 different research groups uh, running neck to neck with almost indistinguishable technology, then if any one of them decides to uh, take it slow and be careful, they'll just be surpassed by one of their competitors. So it seems in an extreme race condition, the race would go to whoever takes the fewest precautions and is least cautious. That that seems to be a, a risk-increasing situation. And so you'd be looking for ways to maybe increase the lead of whichever AI developer is in the lead at a time when you're getting close to superintelligence. Um, so that's the backdrop. Now think about what openness does. It kind of equalizes one variable that could cause dispersion in AI capability. So if you are open about the general science, well, then everybody has access to the same general scientific ideas. If you're open about your source code, let us say, then you equalize uh, the software base that different uh, developers have. That That would mean that any remaining dispersion would have to come from, say, difference in hardware or different data sets or something like that, but with one one less source of dispersion and capability. So that, that would tend to equalize the race, make it more tightly competitive, and, and therefore uh, tend to reduce the lead time that the lead developer has in, in the end to uh, go slow for the sake of caution. You know, you are in this paper proposing that there are some costs to uh, to openness and that they accelerate AI development and more specifically eliminate the opportunity to put in checks and balances kind of in the the end game. I'm also wondering if there's a cost to lack of transparency or closeness that you factored into the analysis uh, that strikes me as, um, you know, mostly around the the danger of not knowing where AGI is, right? If if AGI is, you know, much closer, but it's it's closed and you don't see it and it's 
uh, it's, um, you know, potentially in a more advanced state in your competitors, how do you factor that into uh, the analysis here? Well, so the full analysis, there are a number of other important considerations as well, uh, besides the one I mentioned concerning the racing dynamic. Mm -hmm. You might think about whether, say, an open development context tends to, say, attract a different kind of participant, maybe with better motives than, than products done in secret. Um, but it, in, in terms of being able to know the capabilities even of different products, let, let's set aside their actual algorithms or, or ideas, but even just knowing how far along different products is. In at least one simple model we have, this is in an earlier paper with a couple of colleagues of mine called Racing to the Precipice. You actually get a higher level of overall risk-taking um, if competitors can see more precisely how far along each other is. Um, the intuition being roughly that in this very simple game theoretic model, if you have a winner-takes-all dynamic, uh, that if you see that you are behind, you sort of know for sure that you will lose um, and you'd be willing to take any extra amount of risk if, if that helps you have at least some chance of catching up. Whereas if you're unsure about your relative position, then that would be a limit to the amount of risk you would take because you might be ahead and you wouldn't want to then take more risk just to get further ahead if that then means you'd be likely to destroy the world if you succeeded. Um, now, one can construct different kinds of models of this type of situation and get different outcome. Um, but I think there are some uh, general lessons that seem relatively robust. So one is that the, the greater the degree to which uh, there is a commonality of purpose between different competitors, that is, the greater the degree to which it wouldn't matter to anybody who got there first, the more uh, investment in safety you're likely to get. In, in the limit where it is completely indifferent, who gets there first, then you don't have a race. Like You'd be quite happy to, to drop out of the race if that allows another competitor to spend more time uh, and, and be more cautious in the relevant stages. So that fostering cooperation, fostering a kind of commitment to the common good would seem to not just be good from a fairness point of view, making sure everybody gets a slice of the upside, but, but also be good from an AI risk point of view in taking some of the pressure off this possibility of a racing dynamic. And it's not an all or nothing thing, but, but the more you can kind of um, in, ingrain early on a credible commitment to use AI for the common good of all of humanity, rather than for narrow factional purposes to just enrich one company or strengthen the military of one nation. The, uh, I think the more one can reduce this competition dynamic and obviate some of the problems associated with that. So does that present a, a paradigm of sorts in this particular research area that a more collaborative environment reduces this uh, competitive race, but also tends towards openness, which, you know, increases the competitive nature of it or the risks associated with it? Yeah, that, that, that could be some trade-off there. I, th I think you might want to make a distinction between collaboration and cooperation. So if collaboration means actively working together on one and the same product side by side, mm -hmm. that, that would be maybe one way of cooperating. But you could also imagine, at least theoretically, the possibility of having entirely separate products that have no communication, but are both committed to helping each other out or to sharing the spoils. So that might be a highly cooperative development regime, but 
one that lacks actual active collaboration. And what, what it seems that what you ultimately primarily want here is cooperation. And whether that involves collaboration as well is a more tactical question of what, what seems feasible at a given time. Okay. Uh, returning to the work in, in AI safety, which is a bit further along, what would you say are some of the some of the interesting directions there and any early uh, noteworthy results that uh, folks have, have had? Well, I think maybe it's obvious, but it, it took a little while for the, the to become kind of common knowledge that the approach uh, best illustrated by laws of robotics, the idea that you would handcraft a few principles to guide what AIs are allowed to do does not seem to scale uh, and therefore seems entirely unpromising as an approach to solving superintelligence alignment. And, and that what instead you'll need to do somehow is to leverage the intellectual capability of these hypothetical future systems to help us solve the alignment problem, maybe by having AIs that learn human preferences from human behavior or by interacting with us, um, or that otherwise leverage their intelligence to to help us figure out what it is that we are trying to get them to do. So now the question then becomes, how can you actually do that? And, and then there's a number of different ideas for, for how to go about researching that with, with different researchers having different uh, judgments and intuitions about which of these is more promising. Some of these research avenues are more continuous with current research that is of interest quite independently of any application in a future context of superintelligence. So you have, say, inverse reinforcement learning and uh, human preference modeling that is, is of use even if, even if what you're trying to do is to get, like, say, a recommender system to work better. You want to see various customers have bought these different books and films and rated them thus. So what other books and films are they most likely to use? That is kind of a simple example of how you try to build an AI system that can infer what, what humans want. Um, but if you're trying to move that technology in a direction that could also work in this context of superintelligence, then there are some distinct challenges that arise that, that you could try to do work on. But there's a bunch of other ideas as well of, of research that seems useful to give us a better understanding of the uh, possible safety challenges that could arise when, when you have kind of superhuman systems that you need to control. So, so just, just to give you one flavor of that, so one thing that a, a human-level system could do is to engage in strategic behavior. It could, like, like humans do, it can anticipate what other humans do. It could be deceptive. A superintelligent system could do that, presumably to a superhuman degree of competence. So once you have a sufficiently capable system, you might no longer be able to just assume that you could easily test its capabilities. It might kind of pretend to be less competent than it really is if it predicts that that will then result in a certain behavior on the part of, of the programmers or it, its human keepers. Um, it, it might conceal its true goals if, if it perceives that there is a strategic rationale for doing so. So, so that's a kind of qualitatively different behavior that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see in subhuman artificial intelligence systems. Also, when you have a superintelligent system, there might be a little part of the system, some internal optimization process that might itself be highly capable and maybe smarter than a human. Uh, and, and you need to think about whether there could be these sub-agent processes emerging from, from a larger system that, that you hadn't built in there by design. So there are some ways in which the control problem looks qualitatively different when one is thinking about the challenge of controlling 
a super intelligence as, as opposed to the challenge that we currently have of getting more limited AI systems to perform to expectation. How, as a AI safety researcher, how would you attack uh, those types of problems in the absence of the actual super intelligence? What what's the what are some of the approaches folks are taking to kind of define and make progress in these areas? Well, so again, it comes down partly to taste and subjective judgment. So you could, on the one hand, try to do more theoretical work, try to think through more from first principles, what are some of the issues that could arise with very powerful systems. Or to a different personality, you might prefer to try to do things that kind of build on existing techniques and develop them in a direction that could seem to be useful. So, so a lot of these examples of the latter would be dual use. So say better techniques for uh, understanding what is going on inside a deep neural network, interpretability tools. It seems like that would be useful, uh, not just for making faster progress today. If you're a researcher, like you want to see exactly what's going on in your network and why it's doing what it's doing. But it also seems like that could lead into over time things that would be useful for AI safety in the longer term, if you could kind of have better tools for monitoring the, uh, the, the cognitive processes occurring inside the system. So, so there's like on one hand, yeah, these things like transparency, uh, trying to better understand adversarial examples and countermeasures to that, better ways of doing reinforcement learning or imitation learning. Uh, and on the other hand, these more kind of conceptual or purely mathematical studies of hypothetical systems that we can't currently build, but that you can nevertheless reason about a little bit like you would about some mathematical object that, that you can't actively compute, but you, you could have some theoretical understanding about I guess I'm I'm wondering how, you know, when we reason about these systems mathematically in that way, is there a clear mapping from those more theoretical, from the the work we're doing today, uh, theoretically to you know what might need to be done far off in the future in the case of these systems coming into existence, or is it you know more an issue of hey we're exploring these different areas uh, theoretically and it's providing a, a foundation for future iterations of work in the same area to build on each other with the hopes that we keep pace with the advances that are happening on the AI side itself. It's more the latter. So AI safety, I think, should still be regarded as a pre-paradigmatic science that it's not clear what the best or most relevant ways to address this problem is. It's not even generally agreed exactly what the problem is. So you have different smart people trying out different things, coming up with problem formulations or concepts or subproducts that should be explored. Some of them might turn out to be useful. It's possible none of them will be really useful, but what would be useful is to have built up a research community that is kind of continuously engaging with these questions and gradually over the years refining their insights and, and having them kind of then being able to apply that um, skill to the systems that are eventually built. Um, I, I think it's kind of the sense that this is important enough that we should try our best to make progress on it. And here are some cool ideas for how to make progress. We don't yet know whether any of those will actually turn out to be useful. Uh, are there some things that folks that are working in the, the broader AI field should be thinking about, meaning the folks that aren't working specifically in AI safety or AI governance, but are developing machine learning and AI systems today? How, how do you advise those folks to 
contribute to to this broader issue of AI safety without being fully dedicated to this kind of research? Well, I mean, it's like how you contribute to any any cause in the world that, that you're interested in. You, you could try to work directly there. You could try to support other people working there. You could recommend to talented friends who are young who wants to go into this to actually do so. You can donate money or give prestige by kind of legitimizing it and so forth. Sure. I guess I was wondering if there are like things that you wish every person working in AI was thinking about or something like that. It does seem to me that uh, what would be quite robustly valuable across a wide range of different scenarios is to have a more cooperative approach to AI, um, to try to, as far as possible, ingrain into the community a commitment to the common goods principle that, that AI super intelligence, if it actually were one day achieved, should be for the benefit of all of humanity and in the service of widely shared ethical ideals. Um, and I think the more that that kind of becomes em- embedded within the machine learning community, the greater the chance that that will actually ultimately happen as well. I think the research community has a non-trivial amount of, of, of power. Um, certainly today, if, if you want to do cutting-edge AI research, say you're, you're a firm and you want to be able to hire from the first tier of talent, it helps a lot if you can credibly claim that um, you're going to use this for ethically acceptable purposes. Yeah, yeah. If, if you want to do something nasty, like figure out a better way to generate spam or something like that, or do some kind of highly unpalatable military application, chances are you're going to have a much harder time to recruit the best. You might have to go to the second or third tier talent. Um, so, so this kind of vague commitment to idealism and cosmopolitan values, I think could exert some shaping influence over how AI is developed and used. And so I think anybody in the community can do their part to strengthen that. Um, and I think that cumulatively could be quite could be quite valuable. There, there is a sort of a, a more esoteric issue as well, which relates to this idea of digital minds, again, that um, as our AI systems become more and more complex and capable, and at some point maybe have the same behavioral repertoire of capabilities as as, as animals like uh, a ma- mouse, uh, say, or a dog. At, at that point, I think the, the question of the moral status of these digital minds becomes increasingly relevant. And it, it's a hard thing to discuss. It still feels a little bit like one of those silly things that is kind of, you know, you, you can't say with a, a straight face. But that's where AI safety was uh, five years ago. It was also this fringe thing that a few people on the internet talked about, and you couldn't really... And, and to some extent, these current conversations about AI governance and the wider impact of society, that's also been moving from a fringe science fiction thing, people on the internet, to, to something that people who think of themselves as serious people now acknowledge uh, as a legitimate thing to work on. And, and I think that the moral status of digital minds needs to start making this migration as well from suitable topic for the philosophy seminar room uh, into the kind of thing that you can talk about in some mainstream forum with different views on it, but but without it being a silly thing or something that you kind of snicker about. And and again, yeah, as yeah, you could contribute to that by just not being afraid of, of talking about that if the topic comes up with your friends or colleagues. Uh, one of the interesting things that I came across in some of your writing was this notion of how ethics itself is this dynamic force over time, this dynamic uh, picture over time. 
And we need to, I forget the specific construct, but it was part of the way we approach AI safety is to build in some notion of ethics. It's almost like we need to go back in time to being in, you know, ancient Greece or something like that and trying to build a system that could map itself from that, you know, ethical system to our current ethical system, which is, you know, pretty dramatically different. And that's kind of the way we need to think about uh, building a, a system today. Did, can you kind of elaborate on that? Did I give you enough to to spark some recognition yeah, of what I you mean, were the, actually saying? Yeah, so I, I, th- I, th- I think it would be a mistake uh, if one thinks about how one would use superintelligence to try to list all our current object-level ideas and conceptions and moral principles and sort of try to hardwire those into the AI to then forever characterize how the future should pan out. We should recognize that just as every other earlier age that we can now look back on by our lights were severely misguided, uh, had huge moral blind spots in, in terms of, I don't know, you could go through the list, like slavery, status of women, how it treated animals, social inequalities, causes for war. Like Presumably, we have now not yet attained full moral enlightenment. And it's quite likely that if there are later stages of human history that looks back on 2018, they, they might also shudder to, to, to think about the atrocities that we were committing right now. And so we want to leave open the possibility for moral growth. Um, and not just moral growth narrowly conceived, but for, in general, there to be development in how we think about human values and, and what life can involve and, and how we can organize society. And so that one perhaps attractive vision for how superintelligence would be used would be to enable a, a, a deeper deliberation on the part of humanity, informed, say, by superintelligent advice. And maybe AI could help us increase human intelligence and safeguard us while we were doing this, but some kind of deliberative process that, that could ponder these things for a long time before we made any irrevocable decisions uh, about exactly what kind of post-human future we would want to create and move into. To kind of summarize, it's, you know, it's tempting for us to say, hey, in order to ensure the the ethical behavior of these systems, let's bake in our ethics. Uh, but in the future, our ethics will, you know, undoubtedly be proven to be inferior. And so we need to build yeah, systems yeah, I, that I can think, kind yeah. of navigate, uh, you know, build almost an, an ethical calculus maybe and, and build systems that can navigate kind of changing ethical standards. Well, okay, yeah. So I, I don't think an ethical calculus in the sense that we would lay down some moral axioms and, and then the AI would compute things from those, but more that there is some process whereby we do moral thinking or in general do thinking about what we want in life. Um and if the AI could learn to do that same kind of thinking or to maybe learn to extrapolate our thinking, that, that might then be one way of getting indirectly at this thing that we really want, as opposed to the thing we would say we want if we had to make up some answer off the cuff. So I, I think you're right for two reasons. So one is that you wouldn't want to just code in our current misconceptions and superficial misunderstandings. Um, you would want this possibility of learning and developing and doing something better than we could do at the spur of the moment. Um, also, I think, and this harkens back to the earlier idea of a commitment to the common good, that the more you can conceive of this as a very inclusive process, where not just one person or one country's or one country's values would 
achieve total dominance, but something that could incorporate many different interests, many different value perspectives. Maybe not to an absolute degree, but to a, a widely generous and inclusive degree. Uh, I think that would also make it possible to conceive of, of a future that is more widely appealing and that would reduce some of these incentives to race to the precipice um, that, that would arise if every participant in the development process were just have bent on, on imposing their own idiosyncratic views on the entire future. So I, I think there are two reasons for, for doing it more indirectly and, and in, this, in, in this more inclusive, inclusive way. To, to the extent that it's possible. And, and that, again, I think is something that anybody who's a member of this community in small ways, um, not so much in the specific work they do day to day, but in terms of being ethical members of this community that, that can sometimes talk about and express views about how their little contributions should be used and, and, and the overall purpose for which this technology should be developed, uh, where, where there's space for a lot of voices to cumulatively make a big difference. For folks that have uh, listened to our conversation and want to learn more or uh, dig deeper or begin to even contribute or support some of uh, the work happening in this area, what are good places to start uh, in terms of uh, resources or organizations to follow? Uh, where would well, you I have folks? maybe a uh, an obvious bias. Um, <laughs> I... I, I I, I, I point to uh, the, the book that we talked about earlier as like thing that maybe best expresses my perspective on this, but there is uh, a kind of overlapping set of communities that, that are interested in this. So one, one quite interesting one uh, is the effective altruism community um, that is concerned about the wider range of cost areas, but, but AI also increasingly being one of them. Um, it's a community of people who are trying to think carefully about how you can have the greatest possible positive ex- impact on the world in terms of what you do with your career or in terms of where you donate your charitable giving. So checking out their resources, they have a career guide, they have various blogs, uh, would, would be one good place to start. Uh, and if you want to do technical AI safety, then you, you can Google technical AI research agendas, and, and you'll find different ideas. Or you can see some of the latest publications coming out from uh, DeepMind AI Safety or OpenAI or FHI or MIRI um, or the group at Berkeley to, to see the kind of concrete examples of, of the kind of thing people are working on. Uh, well, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave folks with? No, I mean, I think the bottom line is we don't know how long it will take, but if, if we ever do get to create super intelligence, it's such a big thing that that our our bottom line must be the sense of enormous humility that that we we are just in way over our heads, but we have no choice but to make our best effort to to get through this somehow in a responsible, wise, and generous way. Agreed. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Nick or any of the topics covered in this episode, visit twimmelai.com slash talk slash 181. If you're a fan of this podcast, we'd like to encourage you to visit your Apple or Google podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews help inspire us to create more and better content, and they help new listeners find the show. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.